All right. Well, let's do this. I've been going through the book of Genesis, it seems like, forever. Uh, we are on, we're ready for the 13th chapter. And so here's how we're going to do this. Every good teacher does review before the test. You're getting a written test today. I'm just kidding, obviously. You're not getting a written test. But we are going to review. So let's review over some of the high points, what we've covered so far. And then we're going to get into chapter 13. Chapter 1 was the creation of all things, obviously. And we talked about the Hebrew language and textual markers that tells us that the days of creation were normal, ordinary days. We also believe that the fall of Satan hadn't happened yet. Why? Because at the end of the creation week, God looked at all of his creation and said everything that he made was very good. Yeah. Um, that's kind of important because there's a, there's a kind of strange, kind of an aberrant theological I don't know, theory out there that before all the creation, there was the fall of Satan, and then the earth was destroyed the first time with a big flood, and then uh, after that, then God made man, and there's, so it's, it's almost like adding another creation account to the story, and we don't believe that. Scriptures tell us that God saw all he had made, and behold, it was very good. Chapter 2 was a history of the creation week told with more detail. So chapter 1 is kind of a big picture overview. Chapter 2 gets into more of the details. God brings all the animals to Adam so that he might name them. I always get a question about that. How in the world could Adam name every animal in one day? Sounds good on the outside, right? Like, oh, that's a good question. But we have to remember two things. Number one, he didn't name every animal. It was only land animals and birds. Number two, he didn't name every species. There have not been any speciation events yet. This is just kinds. He's naming kinds of animals. If you named every single kind of animal today, you'd have less than 1,500 animals. How long would it take you to name 1,500 kinds of animals? Remember this. He is perfect. He is literally created directly from the hand of God. You could probably do it today, and your brain and the rest of your body has gone through generation after generation after generation of mutations and problems because of sin. This is a perfect man. Perfect recall. His brain does not have any problems in it. How long would it take him? Well, there's 3,600 seconds in an hour. So if he took two and a half seconds per, he'd be done in an hour. How long would it take you? Horse, dog, cat, snake, sparrow, duck. I don't know, but he could do it in a day. No problem. We also see that after creating man, God says something that he does not say for the rest of all creation. What does he say? It is not good. The only thing in all creation that God looks down and says, it is not good. He looks down, he sees Adam, and he says, it's not good that the man should be alone. That doesn't surprise me, okay, if you know me. Right? I mean, if I was Adam, you know, God looks down, he's like, dude, he just ate that fig. It's been on the ground for seven days. It is not good that man should be alone, okay? Okay. <laughs> That's why I'm happy. I'm always happy to see people get married. You know why? It's not good for man to be alone. Caleb, it's not good for man to be alone. I'm glad you found a helpmeet, the helpmeet that you have. Let me tell you something. Whatever broken and sordid road took me to my wife, I'd take it again in a heartbeat. (laughs) She's the only thing standing in the way of me probably having like all kinds of, you know, like foodborne illnesses. You know, hey, has that been in the refrigerator? Yeah, it was in the refrigerator like a week ago fine. (laughs) No, it's not. Throw it away. Okay. That it was not good for man to be alone. And that's still true today, by the way. But what if I'm single? It's still not good for you to be alone. You you want to know why God has the church? You are designed for community. You're designed to commune with others. You're designed to commune with Christ and you're designed to commune with others, other people as well. It is not good that man should be alone. So what does he do in response to that? He creates a helpmeet that's suited for the task. Looks at all the created creatures and says, they won't do. Newsflash, dog is not man's best friend. I mean, they're good. Don't get me wrong. I love my dogs. But you can't compare that to another human. Chapter 3, probably the saddest chapter in all of Scripture, the fall of man. Man shows he wants to be autonomous. He wants to be free to decide what's right and wrong on his own. God said this is not good, but hey, it looks good to me. I'm looking at the fruit that he says not to eat, and it looks good to me. Why not? Let's just try it out. Let's nibble it a bit. 
What's the worst that could happen, right? And just like sin today, it makes you pay a much higher price than you thought. It takes you farther than you wanted to go. It traps you more than you thought it would. It's more destructive than you could have possibly imagined. And they find that out firsthand. I'll decide what's right and wrong for myself. I don't want to just obey God. I'll decide on my own. We ever have that? We have it still today. I know God's word says this, but I mean, I see other people that it doesn't seem that big deal. It's still a big deal. We see curses being pronounced because of sin. The serpent is cursed. The woman's cursed as well, so that childbearing is painful. I don't know what that's like, but uh, I've got a feeling every mom in here would like to have a word with Eve about her choice and Adam about his choice. The ground is also cursed. It's promised to bring forth thorns and thistles. It is still doing that quite effectively today. I learn that every time I go back in the woods behind my house. Man. We also see that sin is promised to bring strife into the marital relationship. Ever any misunderstandings in marriage? Am I the only one with a perfect marriage? (laughs) Yes, there are misunderstandings in marriage. Why? Well, God tells us because of sin, the woman will be naturally inclined to desire the headship that he's given to God, and the man will be naturally inclined to domineer his wife. And I'm going to tell you something. That is a natural temptation that you will fight all of your married life. You will say things to your wife in a... A domineering, sneering fashion. You get your dander up. Don't you question me. That's what you'll think in your heart. I promise you. It will happen. Why? Because sin still resides in you. Wives, you'll do the same thing. If he, would only, if he was only as smart as me and would make the choices I would make. Yeah. Is that a natural temptation? Yes. It's a natural temptation. And there are two kinds of people when it comes to those temptations. Those that admit they have those temptations and those that lie about it. Those are natural temptations and they will come into every marriage. Why? Because of sin. Sin has a higher price tag than we ever get to see. And yet in all of that, we also see the incredible mercy of God. We see what theologians call, here's a big word for you to remember if you're in seminary, the proto-evangelium. What is the proto? Proto means before or first. Proto-evangelium is the first time we see God mentioning or hinting at his rescue plan, the gospel. Chapter 3, how does he do that? He says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head. You'll only bruise his heel. What is that? That is the first mention. God is saying this. You think you've thwarted what I have begun? You're absolutely out of your mind. I have a plan. I've already accomplished it before all of time began. Here's what's going to happen. I will crush you. That's called the Proto-Evangelium. The first time that we see, we really truly get to see the other side of the character of God. We see his power, his dignity, his might in creation. And in chapter 3, he came into the garden. He gave one command. And his creation had the audacity to, if you will, spit in his face and say, well, I know better. You, the eternal creator, me that's, you know, a few days old, I know better. God would be within his rights to snuff them out to dust, right? Hey, in game, here it is. Adam and Eve are no more. He could recreate. Create somebody else. Start afresh. Start anew. And yet he doesn't. What do we see? We see the incredible mercy, incredible grace that this almighty creator God has. He's not just powerful and majestic, majestic, not just powerful and majestic and omniscient, and but he's also Merciful, he's omnibenevolent. We start to see the character of Christ unfold before our eyes. We start to see the progressive revelation of God. Chapter 4 is the story of Cain and Abel. We see that sin is so wicked and it makes man so desperately sinful that it moves a jealous man to murder his own brother simply out of spite. For nothing other than spite. Mankind continues on a downward spiral so much that by the end of the chapter, we see a man named Lamech bragging about killing a young man simply for wounding him. If you would like to know where gangster rap comes from, this is the first one. It's actually only the second poem ever recorded in Scripture. And what's Lamech doing? 
bragging about how bad he is. I'm so bad. Listen to me, woman. Listen to me, wives of Lemek. I'm such a bad dude, I killed a man because he just wounded me. First gangster rap. And it's still as crappy as it was then. It's incredible. Hadn't changed. Chapter 5, Adam's family tree. We see Adam's descendants listed all the way down to Noah and his three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, right? Who were become the fathers of all the nations on the earth after the flood. Chapter 6, we now see the wickedness of man in full revealing. God tells us in 6.3, he started the clock of divine judgment. The entire earth is going to be judged. It's 120 years. The clock is ticking. Get on it, Noah. It's kind of weird. I made eye contact with Noah when I said that. I guess I'm building a boat now. <laughs> Different Noah. The Lord said this, my spirit shall not always abide with man for his flesh and his days will be 120 years. There are a lot of people who read that and they go, oh, that's where the Bible says that the natural lifespan of man is going to be 120 years. That is not what the Bible says. You realize Noah lived 350 years after the flood, right? That, by the way, that means he was alive when Abraham was alive. Think about that. How did Abraham know so much about the world before the flood? Uh, he talked to the dude that was there. Shem was still alive. Abraham actually would have died possibly before Shem did. Shem lived 500 years after the flood. That's incredible. We don't know. There's, there's some, there could be some gaps in there of a few years, but the long story short is this. 120 years is not the natural lifespan of man. Okay? Sometimes people live longer than that even today. It's very rare, but it does happen occasionally. No, 120 years was what God was saying. Hey, look, man is so wicked that the entire earth is infected with his wickedness to such an extent that it is irredeemable. I will wipe this place out in 120 years. Clock's ticking. And the very next, what do we see? We see the judgment and the wrath of a holy and righteous God. That a holy and righteous God cannot turn his back, cannot wink at sin. It must be judged. And the very next verse, what do we see? I mean, right down, we see all of this wickedness going on. And the very next thing that we see is, but Noah found grace in the eyes of God. Here's what people think. Well, Noah was a good man. That's why God loved him. No, God loved him. And that's why Noah was a good man. God is already showing us he has a person or people in mind that he reaches out to and saves Here's what it says. 6.5 sums up the, basically what was going on very well. 6.5 says, The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in all the earth, that every intention of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. Verse 7, So the Lord said, I will blot out man from the face of the earth. I'm going to kill them all. You know why God killed them all? Because they deserved it. Why does God judge sin? Because sin deserves to be judged. And we deserve the judgment of God too. What makes the gospel such an incredible thing? You get what you didn't deserve. That's what makes the gospel such an incredible thing. Verse 8, right after that, the Lord says, I'm going to blot out man from the face of the earth. That's verse 7. Verse 8, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. So what's God say to Noah? Noah, everything's going to die. Build a boat. Noah changed job fields. Uh, never been a boat builder so far in the history of the earth that we're aware of. Build a what? A boat. What's that? Sun is going to rain. It's going to what? What's that? Doesn't matter. Just do what I tell you to do. And he does. I've got news for you. We, we went and took the families out what, about a month ago. Went and saw the big ark out in... Out there in Kentucky, it's life-size, right? It's built to the biblical proportions. That is one big boat. It is hard to really conceptualize how large this vessel was until you're standing in it, and it's like, this thing dwarfs me. I mean, it's, it's really kind of hard to fathom. This is what they did. It's been 120 years on that. I've got news for you. It was not Noah that made that boat float. It was God. God had decided to save his people. And I don't care if every drop of water in creation fell on the roof of it, that baby's floating. 
Why? Because God has decided it's going to float. Who shut the door on the ark? God did. You, you think Noah ever wondered about that detail? Hey, God, I got, I, got, I got kind of a big question. How are we going to shut this thing once we're in there? That could be bad to the floating. It's kind of a big hole inside of the boat. God had that detail covered. Let me tell you something. That gives me real comfort. You know why? Because, brother, when it comes to this building, I have prayed and fasted and I have fretted and worried. And there's all kinds of details that I just can't get my mind around. And then I have to step back and go, well, Paul, do you think you're in charge of this deal? Or are you just along for the ride? I say, yep, you are the sovereign God, not Paul Wilson. Chapter 7, God instructs Noah to go into the ark. He shuts the door. The great flood commences. Chapter 8, the flood has done what it was supposed to do. It's killed everything. That means it has to be worldwide in scope. And we talked about that, right? It was uh, 15 uh, cubits above the highest mountains. You don't get above the highest mountains, right, if it's local. That would be a very strange sight. The water is deeper than the mountain, and you're looking over from the valley next door going, man, that's, that's some crazy weather they're having over there. No, we killed everybody. And lots of stuff, too. There's times when I'm preaching and the trains come past. You, probably, you guys probably don't notice it, you know, when the trains come past when I'm up here preaching. Yeah, you can't hear anything with the train. But there's times I've been up here preaching and I've seen train loads of just coal and oil. And I think the vast majority of that was created here. How many train loads and train loads and train loads? How much stuff was killed in that flood? A lot. A lot. And yet God had the mercy to keep his people safe. We see the gospel already beginning. God commands the floodwaters to recede in chapter 8. Noah and the animals disembark. Noah makes a sacrifice of thanksgiving. I think that's probably appropriate. And God promises, it says he actually smelt the sweet aroma. He promises to never bring this kind of devastation upon the whole earth ever again. He gives a sign. What's the sign? Chapter 9, he gives the sign. It's the rainbow. That's right. Chapter 9, God makes a covenant, makes a covenant with Noah, puts the rainbow in the sky as a sign. He also tells Noah he's now allowed to eat flesh. That's the first time we see in the scriptures it's okay to eat meat. Actually, he says it's fine to eat everything. Anything that moves. Hey, whatever you need for food, it's yours. It's probably a good thing since they're starting out from scratch, right? Yeah. Noah, um, he also, of course, puts his rainbow in the uh, sky. God also gives Noah some social rules for life in this new, brave new world. What's the rule? There's really only one rule. This is the beginning. If that animal takes a man's lifeblood, it will be put to death. If that man takes a man's lifeblood, they're to be put to death. That's the rule. Which is what? That's actually the establishment of what we call the Imago Dei. People have a protected status with God because they're made in the image of God. You can kill a deer and God's not going to require your life for it. You can kill a cow and God's not going to require your life for it. But you kill a human, God says, I don't care if it's a bug. I don't care if it's a bird. Whatever it is, I don't care if it's another person. You kill a human, you have, you have now sacrificed your right to live. Their life is worth more. Noah plants a vineyard, drinks of the vineyard, and something weird happens. That's actually the first time we even see wine mentioned. There may not have even been wine before the flood. We don't know. But some weird stuff starts happening to him. And he, I think probably it's, you know, it's pretty reasonable. If you've never known what alcohol was before, and this guy drinks this, and all of a sudden he's like, man, I'm hot. I don't know what's wrong with me. I may have thought he's going to die. Holy smokes. Something's wrong. He strips himself down naked and passes out in his tent. What happens? His youngest son comes into the tent, sees what's going on, comes back out, starts mocking him to his older brothers. His older brothers have the good sense to preserve their father's honor and dignity. They walk in backwards. They cover him up. And what happens for that? By the way, God ever rebuked Noah for that? No, he did not. Do you know who did bear the curse? 
the young man who was dishonoring his father and his offspring. Cursed now is Canaan. That was his son because of Ham. We're going to get into that today. We live in a society that has lost all sense of honor and dignity. And we think it's cute. And God does not. Chapter 10, the table of nations. We see people spreading out after the flood. And and we see that every nation, tribe, tongue, ethnicity on earth ultimately descends from one of those three kids. Shem, Hammer, Japheth, right? Noah's sons. Chapter 11 was the Tower of Babel. God tells man to spread out and multiply all over the earth. And man basically goes, I won't do it. Instead, they say this. Hey, we're going to make a name for ourselves. Do you know how much sin has been perpetuated on the basis of making a name for ourselves? You know how much sin in the church and in ministry has been perpetuated from that? Just that. We're going to make a name for ourselves. We're going to defy God. We're going to build this big city with a massive tower so that we won't be spread over the earth. Instead of making God's name God's name great. Instead of being concerned with making God's name great, they're concerned with making their own name great. And I would submit to you there's lots of ministries like that today. And that's a sad state of affairs, and that's true. I want to make sure my name's up in lights. And that's, in essence, what they were saying. We're not going to spread out. We're not going to do what God told us to do. We're not going to be insignificant. No, sir. We'll make a name for ourselves. This great city and a big tower whose top is in the heavens. And the Bible says God came down. Oh, that's what you're going to do, you little rebels, are you? God told them to scatter across the face of the earth. God takes a look at what's going on. He says, look at what they're doing. They're all united in their rebellion. If I allow this to continue on, this is only the beginning. Basically, it's going to get just like it was before the flood. And I'm not going to allow that. At least not yet. So what's he do? Confounds their language. So what do they do? They spread out. Hey, it's real simple. We can do this the easy way or the hard way. I told you to spread out over the face of the earth. You're not doing it. Oh, you're going to do it. You can do it the easy way or you can do it the hard way. But you are going to do it. God confounds man's plan of rebellion by confusing his language. He forces the rebels to spread apart just as he told them to do, which brought us to chapter 12. Last time I preached the call of Abram and I'm kind of not sure what to do here am i supposed to wait for this train or should i keep preaching until it it, you know like interrupts me further i'm like the guy that pulls up to the yellow light Ah, stop or go does anybody actually stop at yellow lights i think you're supposed to aren't you You know, the train's close when when you're preaching, you can literally make eye contact with the conductor. It's pretty close. Weird. Chapter 12 was the call of Abram. We see God choosing a man named Abram. Who chose who? I had a guy tell me one time, well, if God chooses people, he's unjust. I said, well, did God choose people in the Old Testament? This guy's a big, you know, supporter of Israel. Well, yeah, okay, was he unjust in the Old Testament, but now he's just in the New Testament? I never got an answer for that, by the way. I don't think I probably ever will. God chooses a man called Abraham. He tells Abram, not Abraham, he tells Abram, he hadn't changed his name yet. He tells Abram, hey, come follow me. Leave everything you know, which, by the way, Abram was in a very large city. He was part of a family that was very wealthy. And God says, hey, follow me. That's a big deal. Because in essence, he's saying, follow me to a land that I will show you, right? That's what he said. Which means he's saying to Abram, hey, come follow me. Where are we going? You don't have to know. What am I going to do? Doesn't matter. You're going to follow me. I got a really good job, though. And uh, we're pretty wealthy. Got a lot of good stuff. I've, I've never been in agricultural life. Never, you know, taking care of animals. I hear they're stinky and a lot of work. It doesn't matter. God says, come follow me. And Abram does. 
sort of. Sort of does what he's told to do, right? He does go. But he also takes along a nephew of his, right? Lot. Let me tell you something. Abram taking Lot along did not help Abram. But it did help Lot. And you will notice something. I'm going to smack on Lot today. Because Lot was making a lot of Lot was making a lot of decisions that showed that he just didn't know the Lord yet, to be quite honest with you. And probably Abram was the same way early on in his faith journey. Not probably, he was. But you know who we find in the Hebrews Hall of Fame of Faith? We find Lot. I would say that while Lot was with Abram, Abram was telling him about this God. And at some point, the things that Abram told him took root in his heart. I don't know when it was, but it obviously was, because he had real faith. If the, if the book of Hebrews lists you as having real faith, i got news for you. You have real faith. We also talked about in chapter 12, um, Abram was initially something of an entitled young man. He was a bit weak on faith, but God begins shaping him, testing him, training him, and molding him. And by the end of his life, he's a mighty man of faith who has learned to trust God implicitly. You're on the same journey. The Bible says you are a spiritual heir of Abraham. And guess what? You're on the same kind of journey Abraham was on. You are learning. You're you're going faith to faith. You're learning how to trust God more and more all the time. You're learning how to trust God in different circumstances. You're learning how to trust God to put sin to death in your life like we learned about this morning. You're learning how to trust God for things that you can't control. You're learning how to trust God for conditions that are outside of your control. And you know why that is? At the end of your life, you're going to have the greatest test anyone will go through. You're going to lay down and breathe your last. And you're going to trust God with your spirit. And I've got news for you that's great news. Whether you feel like that is a scary time or whether you're at total peace does not matter. If you have trusted in Christ, whether you're scared to death or whether you're at total peace, Christ is taking your spirit. He is taking it to be with him forever. You have nothing to fear at that great hour. That's the faith journey that we're on. I had a scare a few months ago. I really did. I thought it was my last hour on earth. We're in the car driving to the hospital, the ER one night, and I told my wife, I said, I don't know, this could be it. The only thing I could think of was my wife and kids. Do you know what was really strange? Because I thought I'd be more scared of just death at that hour. I wasn't. That is not because I'm a bold man, because I'm telling you I'm not in my flesh. I'm a coward, just like you are in your flesh. But that's because I know. I know who I've entrusted my spirit to. I know, though I am not able, Christ is. And though I am sometimes unfaithful, Christ is never unfaithful. He is faithful, and he'll watch over you. Back to this. We also established this. We established all those who have faith in Christ are spiritually children of Abraham. That through Christ, we Gentile believers have been adopted and grafted into Abraham's lineage. That's what Romans 4.11 tells us. It tells us that Abraham is the father of all them that believe. It is also significant for us to point something out here for you apologetics and archaeological nuts. About 100 years ago, most skeptical scholars believed that Abraham didn't even exist. They were arguing that Abraham was more of like a Jewish hero. It's kind of like Romulus and Remus. Y'all know who that is? Who knows who Romulus and Remus is? Who did, what were they supposedly found? Rome. Rome, right? Yeah, they were the founders of Rome. Well, we don't even know if they actually existed. Right? They might have just been mythical lore. And that's what people were actually arguing about Abraham 100 years ago. I mean, that's what like B.B. Warfield and some of these guys that lived in the, the early part of the 1900s, the late 1800s, that's literally what they're arguing about. No, Abraham is a real person. Do you know what's happened since then? Have there been an archaeological find or two or 20,000? Yeah. Even ignorant unbelievers know today, yeah, Abraham is a real person. It's incredible how the more we dig in the dirt, the more we find out, hmm, that book is really true. Which brings us to Genesis chapter 13. All right. Let's go there. Here's what I want to do. I want to read through this chapter. 
It's only 18 verses. And we're going to get into it. Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and lot with them into the Negev. Sometimes that's the Negev. Basically, it's the desert region in the bottom of Israel. If you look over at a, a Middle Eastern map today, you'll see Egypt, right? You see Jordan, you see like this desert, kind of triangle-shaped desert in between there that's part of Israel. That's the Negev. Okay? He's going back to where he was, actually came from. That's what he's actually doing. He's going back to where he built the altar earlier. Abraham was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold. Remember, how did he get rich? Man, best get rich quick scheme in the history of man up to this point. He goes to Egypt. The king sees his wife like, dude, she's a good looking lady. Which, by the way, if you're in your 70s and there's the king, the king goes, that's one of the best looking ladies in the whole kingdom. Dude, you got it going on. I'm just saying, okay? He says, that is one good-looking lady. Takes her, it goes to, actually talks to Abram. Hey, about this lady? And she's spoken for, oh, that's my sister. Abram lies. Right? Because he's scared if he says, that's my wife, they'll kill him for her. I mean, obviously, she was a good-looking lady. She literally tells her wife, look, look, tells his wife, I know you're a good-looking lady. These people, when they see you, they're going to want to take you as, as their own because you're that good-looking. So just tell everybody you're my sister. Not a good plan. But he did get very wealthy out of this plan, right? What happens? King takes his wife. God shows up in a dream to the king. Yo, bud, you're dead. I say, what? <laughs> what have I done? That's his wife. What does he do? You're going to return his wife, right? Because there's all kinds of plagues going on with his household. You're going to return the wife to him. By the way, that, that happened twice in Abram's life. So he finally learned to obey God. Which is very strange because when he finally learns to trust the Lord, he's right in the middle of the Philistines. And then the Bible says he stayed there for many days. He finally understands, you know, many chapters later, we'll get into that weeks down the line. He finally gets to the point in his faith journey, he realizes, wait, God is sovereign. And he can keep me safe in the middle of my enemies just as easy as he can keep me safe in the desert in Egypt. It's incredible. But the king returns his wife. Loads them up with riches and basically says, get out of here. So they go back. Now they're very wealthy. They don't just have silver and gold. Remember, a lot of times in that day and age, actually still in that culture, places in the Middle East, still today, um, wealth was not just measured in gold and silver. What was it? Livestock and people. Hey, you've got all these servants. Man, you're rich then. I mean, you, you probably are pretty wealthy today if you've got a bunch of servants. If you came over to my house and there's like five people out there just, you know, they're mowing the lawn and, you know, doing the dishes. And you're like, what's this? Oh, this is my, this is my servants. They're here Monday through Friday, take care of everything for us. I mean, you're not poor, right? What's going on with Abraham? He's got a lot of servants. He's got a lot of uh, livestock. He's got silver and gold. He's very, very wealthy. He's very powerful now, right? He's gone from zero to hero, as they say sometimes. Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold. He journeyed on from Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. What does that mean, he called upon the name of the Lord? Early on in Genesis, we see this strange thing happen. Chapter 3, chapter 4, we see this little piece that says from that time men began to call upon the name of the lord what does that mean they're worshiping god from that time people began worshiping the lord do you call upon the name of the lord i would hope so when you're in trouble and you don't know what to do what do you do you call upon the name of the lord god help me yeah that's what abram's doing Verse 5, and Lot, who was with, uh, went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. Okay, he was also very wealthy. 6, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great they could not dwell together. There was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Do you notice this? Really kind of weird. Who cares about the Canaanites and Perizzites? Why does it even say that? Oh, these two guys, there was strife between them. By the way, at that time, the Canaanites and Perizzites were dwelling in the land, and we hear nothing else about it. I'm going to let you think on that. I'm going to come back to that. 
Verse 8, Abram said to Lot, let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we're kinsmen. You're my family. Is not the whole land before you? Look at all this land out there. You can have whatever place you want. Why do we have to fight over this? If you take the left, I'll go to the right. And if you take the right, I'll go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord. Man, that's the garden of Eden. Look at that place. It's incredible. Just like the land of Egypt, just like that pagan place he came out of that was so wealthy. Man, this is the perfect place. In the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Verse 11. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley. What a greedy little Cretan. And Lot journeyed to the east, and thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. I love when I hear people tell me all sin's the same. All sin's the same. Really? Then why were the men of Sodom wicked and great sinners against the Lord? Oh, it's not all the same. It's all breaking God's law. It all makes us sinners, but it's not all the same. And that's why there's different punishments for different sins in the Old Testament. Was God unjust when he gave different punishments for different sins? No, not all sins the same. Okay. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look to the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, westward, for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth. Can you number all the particles of dust of the earth? Yeah, me neither. It's beyond enumeration. So that if one could count the dust of the earth, your offspring could also be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. All right. Let's go back to this because there's something I want you to focus on. There's something I want you to get out of this passage that is very important. And the principles that are shown in this passage apply to us today. Verse, let's start here at verse 6. So the land could not support both of them dwelling together because their possessions were so great they couldn't dwell together and there was strife between them. Verse 7. Verse 8 says this, or verse 7 says, goes on to say this. There was strife between them and at that time the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Who, who cares? Why is that superfluous detail thrown into the text of Scripture? I've got news. There are no superfluous details in the text of Scripture. There are no details that are there just to be there. Those details tell us something about the text. That little detail is giving us a very important contextual clue in this passage. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were living in the land. Were the Canaanites and Perizzites, did they know the Lord? No. Were they pagans? Yes. Were they watching the strife between these two men who claimed to know the only living God? Yes. Was it bringing a bad name and testimony to these people who claimed to know the one and only living God in the eyes of watchers that were pagans? Yes. Why does Abram say, hey, it's really important for us not to fight? It's not just because he didn't like strife. Abram is concerned about the glory of God's name. And we as Christians should be as well. Abram doesn't want to fight with Lot while the Perizzites and these other pagans are watching. He wants them to see God's people are not like everybody else on earth. He wants them to see a very clear testimony of Christ, of God's grace. He wants them to see a clear testimony that God's people are not like everybody else. Is that important today? Yes. Why does the Apostle Paul say later, hey, you guys are fighting. Why, why don't you just accept being cheated? 
It's better to just let him cheat you. Why would Paul say that? Because it's more important that the glory of God's name is seen by a watching, pagan, lost, unregenerate world than it is important that you get your due. Abram knows that. Lot couldn't care less. Abram knows that, and so he says to Lot, Look, we've got to put an end to this strife, so here's what you can do. You choose the whatever land you want. You take the choicest land. Wherever you go, I'll go the opposite, so we can quell this, we can squash this, we'll get rid of this quarreling. What should Lot have done? This was his father, basically. This was the father who had adopted him, pretty much. Has taken care of him, even though he had no need to. Has provided for him, has taken him along the journey. What should Lot have done? He should have let his elder choose. Here's some passages about that. He should have given deference to his elder, but his heart was so lifted up in selfish ambition. He leapt at the chance for this selfish gain. It was self-promotion. All right. Leviticus 19.32 tells us we're to rise before the gray-headed man and honor the elderly among us. Uh, that principle has not gone away. 1 Peter 5.5. 5, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves with humility because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. 1 Timothy 5.1. Don't rebuke an older man but encourage him as you would a father. I'm sure we all do that, right? Hebrews 13, 17, obey your leaders and submit to them because they're keeping watch over your souls. Proverbs 19, 20, listen to their advice and accept instruction so that you might gain wisdom. And we all do a good job of doing that, don't we? Our parents count as those. Job 12, 12, wisdom is found among the age and understanding in those with length of days. Romans 12.10, love one another with brotherly love. Outdo one another in showing honor. 2 Timothy 3 says this, understand this, in the last days perilous times will come because people will be lovers of themselves. They'll be lovers of money. They'll be proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to parents. That makes the list? Here are all the characteristics of people in the last days. They're going to be so debased that they don't even honor their own parents. Do you know what we think of? We think that's cute. We think we're really smart when we do that. We think it's funny. God does not think it's funny. So here they are. Here are these two at a fork in the road. They can't go the same direction. Abram says to Lot, you take whatever land you want. I'll give you the best. That is Christian character. I'm willing to take the slight so that I can have peace here and God's name can get the glory that it's due. That's Christian character. That's Christian character in a marriage. No, but she was wrong. So what? I'm going to make sure she knows she was wrong. Brother? You can win the battle and lose the war. That relationship with that woman is much more important than you being right. Newsflash. You might have to apologize even when you don't feel like you were wrong. Why? Because that relationship is more important than you being right. Ladies, same goes for you. It's important. They have to separate. Abram says to Lot, don't want any strife. The whole land is before you. Take what you want. And what does Lot do? Lot looks through the eyes of an unregenerate man. Lot looks around and goes, look at that beautiful pasture land down there. Why, if I go down there and take my herds down there, they're going to increase. And I'm going to become even more wealthy. And I'll be, even, I'll be influential. And people will know me. My name is up in lights. And that's exactly what we see with him. We see a progression of Lot doing that very thing. Get back here because I wrote them all down. It's a sad progression too. Never even occurred to Lot, you know, maybe I should pray about this. Maybe there's more to it than just the place that's going to make me the wealthiest. 
or make me the most influential or make me the most dignified. Maybe there's more to it than that. What do we see? We see a three-part progression. First, Lot pitches his tent towards Sodom. That's 1312. He sees all of this beautiful land, and there's this huge, very bustling metropolitan city, probably the most powerful city in that place by far, the most powerful city in that place, very large. Zoar and the rest of the ones around are kind of little hubs. It's kind of like having Ada and Lada and Bing and all that, right? Ada is kind of the hub of that. Sodom was the hub of that. Lot knew it. Hey, if I'm really big and influential and powerful, why, if you were, if you were well-known enough and you were wealthy enough, you could become one of the elders of the city. That was a huge honor in those days. You sit at the city gates, and so when people come into town, they know, hey, these are the bigwigs right here. These are the people that have the power to tell me, nope, you're not coming in, or yeah, come on. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to be, I'm going to have my name in lights. I'm going to be well known. That's where I'm going. 1312, we see him pitching his tent towards Sodom. He's still in the plane, but hey, I got to have my doorway where I can see what's going on. He's tempted. He's enticed. By chapter 14, he's dwelling in Sodom. By chapter 19, he's sitting in the gates. Let me tell you something. Self-promotion is a blinding force. I'll give you a little story that God, in his mercy, delivered me from. Had a uh, very large church a few years ago. We came back to uh, Oklahoma. A very large church reached out to us. Well, this was before I was even a pastor here, okay? I'm just being faithful, doing what I'm asked to do. Said, hey, we want you to come over. We want to put you on staff. We want to train you. We're going to vet you to be the next pastor. Okay, this church runs five or six hundred on a you know Sunday morning and about fifteen hundred on Easter or Christmas. It's a big church, wealthy church. Do you think that's tempting? Is there any bivocational pastor on earth that doesn't want to be a full time pastor? Not that I'm aware of. All of us do. Wouldn't you love to be able to spend your entire week in the Word of God and? Talking with the people that you love? Yeah, absolutely. Do you think that sounded good to me? Son. What, what, what's it pay? You may not realize this, but teaching is not a lucrative field. Um, and they did have more money than I was making as a teacher. And I'd be able to be full-time. Man, I was pretty excited. I went home and I talked to Justin and Ronnie and all these guys. I'm like, oh, man, this is really cool. And they're like, what's the doctrine there? Uh, it, it would need some work, granted. Do you think that's going to work? Is that where you want to raise your kids? Is that where you want your family to grow up? Is that the environment you want? There are a lot of other factors to that decision, aren't there? You know, I hadn't thought about those things. You know why? Boy, it looked good. And this is my ticket to self-promotion. Ticket to the big time. There's more to it than that. The mind and thought processing of a Christian worldview is different than the world. Turn with me. Ephesians 4. That's exactly what Paul says in Ephesians. It's exactly what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, which Blake read over this morning. I was really happy that he did the text that he did. I was like, that's great. Springboards right into it. Out of boy. Four seventeen. Here's what Paul says in, in Ephesians four seventeen. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. How do they walk? In the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding. Alienated from the life of God because of what? The ignorance that is in them. Due to the hardness of their heart. They've become callous and they've given themselves up to sensuality. They're greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that's not the way you learned Christ. What does he keep saying over and over and over? They don't think correctly. You, if you're going to be a Christian, must think differently. Romans 8, which we were just in this morning.
Starting at verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. They think according to the standards of the world. Hey, this is a great idea. Why does Lot love the idea of moving down by Sodom? Because it looks like it's a place to be wealthy. It looks like it will increase his prominence, his stature, his standing. Did he think about his family at all? What did it cost his family to go become a Sodomite? Actually, if it weren't for Abram pleading on his behalf, it would have cost them all of their lives. He would never even known. Sodom is about to be destroyed. Whoa, hey, 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 I got a, hey. I got a nephew that lives there. And he's a righteous man. Will you destroy the whole city if you got the righteous in there? You can't destroy the righteous and the wicked together, can you? Bargains with God all the way down. God finally says, look, if you can find just this handful of righteous people in Sodom, I won't, I'll spare the whole city. God knows you ain't, you ain't going to find it. So what does he do? He sends a couple of angels who rescue Lot. Righteous Lot. Who vexed his soul daily by the things that he saw. Instead of vexing his soul, he should have left. The, the place that God's going to destroy, that they should have been coming out of, he's going into. Because he sees it as his ticket to wealth. He sees it as his ticket to prominence. He sees it as his ticket to influence. I'm going to be dignified. What does it cost him? Well, his wife's turned to a pillar of salt. His two children, whom he almost sacrificed to the wickedness of Sodom, then get him drunk and take advantage of him. And his two grandchildren become some of the worst enemies of Israel and are then marked out for judgment later. What does it cost him? It cost him everything. What does it cost him to gain the wealth? Everything. I have news for you. If you're making decisions based on how prominent this is going to make you, how wealthy this is going to make you, and that's all you're thinking about, you might want to reconsider. I'm not saying it's bad to get a promotion to work, okay? If you're a faithful man and you get a promotion, that's a great thing. If you are faithful and the Lord gives you uh, riches, that's a great thing. But there's a right way and a wrong way to go about it, understand? Abraham took the right way. He actually headed back up into the hills, which did not look like a good place to go. And yet the Lord blessed him. Lot took what looked good on the outside and found out it was vacuous. And I have news. We are prone to make those same kind of decisions today. Oh, it's going to be my ticket. If I would have taken that decision, I had another time. I went to, a, went to a motorcycle rally of all the places I got asked to preach. I was like 23. I was a youth pastor. I hadn't ridden motorcycles in like 10 years, 15 years. The only motorcycles I ever rode as a kid was dirt bikes. They had this big motorcycle rally, and they're like, hey, we're looking for a speaker. Hey, would you do it? How in the world I got tapped for this, I still, I, I will never know. But, you know, hey, 23-year-old 20, guy, and they say, hey, speak at this big Christian motorcycle rally. Do you think I'm going to take that chance? Absolutely. So I go down to this motorcycle rally. Everybody's there on bikes except for me. You know, I'm pulling up in my jalopy. <laughs> I am not the cool kid here. I spoke at this thing, and I come down. It's, it's nighttime by this time. I was the big event speaker. I get done. I come down off the stage there, and there's some men there. They say, hey, we want to talk to you. So they pull me over. They whisk me over. They've got this little tent. had no idea. It was like seeing the Sadducees or something. You come into the tent, and here's all these men in chairs. I was like, dude, I'm going to jail. I don't know what I did, but I'm going to jail, right? And they're like, well, we had this friend of ours that told us you were going to be here speaking, I didn't even know, like, how, how do they even know? It's not like I'm, you know, a like, well-known guy. We decided we want you as our pastor. Very large church, again. We want you to come be the pastor. Well, I'm, I mean, uh, that's very, it's very kind, but I'm, I'm, I already have a post. I mean, I'm, I'm a youth pastor at this little church in Ada. Well, yeah, you're a youth pastor. What are you making? And I was like, well, money is not the issue. And they start telling me what they're going to give me. Hey, look, we're going to pay you... Better than $40,000. To me, that was the most money I could think of in my life. You know, I mean, I didn't have two nickels to rub together at the time. We're going to pay you that. We're going to give you a parsonage. We're going to give you a car to use. And we've got an expense account credit card. And you're going to be the pastor of this very well-known church in this 
place. Do you think that was tempting? Son. What did I say? It was one of those things where it was like the Lord moving in me before my heart had a chance to take over. Good thing, you know. You get done later and you go, what was I thinking? Right? I said, I, uh, it's very flattering. I, I Thank you. It's very encouraging that you have that kind of confidence in me. But, but I already have a, a position. And I feel like that's where God wants me. I feel like I'm doing what God's called me to do. The guy's like, do, do you not understand what we're offering you? First guy to speak. It's always the money guy, right? What are they paying you? <laughs> I was so embarrassed to say, they weren't paying me anything, okay? I was working for free. I was so embarrassed to say that. All I could say was, the money's fine. <laughs> they come out of my mouth. <laughs> and I can remember getting in my car after this whole thing, going home and going, did I just make the greatest mistake of my ministerial life ever? Drove home. Didn't tell the pastor of the church that that had happened. Told some friends later. I told, told my mom like 10 years later, she was so mad. What? Why didn't you do that? I didn't feel like this was what God, why? Because I didn't feel like that's what God wanted me to do. Didn't you think about it? Are you kidding? I've thought about it every day since. Are you kidding me? Yes. Do you know what happened though? A few months later, I ran into this girl at this camp. And I told a buddy of mine, man, that's the kind of girl I want to marry someday. And I did. And it may sound cliche, but I mean it. Whatever broken, sordid road took me to that girl, I'd go again. The greatest thing in my life other than Christ has been the woman that I'm married to. Are there times that I wish I could have a big salary and be full? Sure, absolutely. But I also wouldn't have been here. And I'm going to tell you something. This may sound cliche and strange, but it's true. I've never been around a group like we've gotten. And I wouldn't change it. I wouldn't take all the tea in China to pastor somewhere else. As I see young men and women being raised up to make a difference, to make an impact for the kingdom of God, and the greatest pleasure that we have as pastors and ministers is just to be able to be involved in that. I wouldn't trade it. I wouldn't be here and I wouldn't know you, and I would not trade that. Listen, there's more to the decisions in your life than whether you can find a big pot of gold at the end of that rainbow. And I hope that when you have those big decisions, the first thing you do is to reflect and pray, God, do I have an inner peace from you about this? Lord, is that what you want me to do? Not is that what my flesh wants to do. My flesh wants to do that. My flesh wants to be rich and well-known and influential and dignified and everything that all the rest of the world does, but I'm asking God, what do you want me to do? Now, I regretted that decision for a while. I do not regret that decision today. I don't. I believe I did what God wanted me to do. I believe it was a testing of my heart. By the way, I may have taken that post, and three months later they go, uh, what this guy's got, we don't want. And then where are you? May we have the wisdom to seek after the mind of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. God, I thank you for this incredible group of people that I get the privilege of preaching and teaching among. I get the privilege of pastoring. Father, I thank you for that. I thank you for your people. Father, I ask that you would give us the mind of Christ in these decisions. We have a lot of people in here that have big decisions that they're making life-altering decisions. And God, I ask that as they're doing that, unlike Lot, who didn't pray, he didn't seek your face, he just took what looked good to his eyes. God, let us do opposite that. Let us do like Abraham. Let us seek you. Let us call on the name of the Lord and say, God, what is it you want me to do? Where is it you want me to go? And let us be faithful to do that, whether it's whether it makes us a lot of money, whether it makes us a lot of fame or not, let us be faithful to do what it is you've called us to do. In Jesus' name.